Amen. Good morning. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. And let me be the first to uh, bid you all a happy New England Patriots Coronation Day. Hey, 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 hey. I don't like it any more than you do. I've got eagles green on here, all right? But reality is reality. Last time I was up here, uh, it was Labor Day weekend, and I uh, shamelessly used the introduction to the sermon to announce my uh, imminent grandparenthood. So I tend to reprise that today. If my math is correct, we're just 18 days away from the blessed event. Yeah. And uh, if you've seen Danielle lately, you know things have progressed since Labor Day quite handsomely. She's beautiful. Um, And of course, we know more than we knew then. We know of the gender of the child, and Jackson and Danielle have picked out a name, and of course, it's probably appropriate that they disclose those things to you, and, you know, at their time, and when they, her name is Evelyn. <laughs> I'll deal with the repercussions of that later, and there's two things I know about little Evelyn, except for her mom and her dad, I, sorry Jane, will be her favorite. And I know this because I intend to spoil the snot out of this child. For her first birthday, she's getting a pony. I don't know how Jackson and Danielle are going to work that out in their townhouse, but that's, that's their problem. There's actually a point to this. And the point is uh, that Jane and I are, are trying to figure out how, how we're going to adjust to being grandparents. We've never done this before. And transition and change are part of life, right? In talking with Jackson and Danielle, they have the normal amount of apprehension becoming new parents. Change and transition is happening for them. Um, Jane and I have been watching the Netflix series, The Crown. Yeah. Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're one episode away from finishing season two. No spoiling it for us, all right? We couldn't quite get it in before the weekend. But one of the clear themes of this this, uh, show is um, transition and change in post-World War II England, right? Societal roles of men and women are changing. Marriage and divorce is changing. The monarchy and parliament, their roles are changing. And it's, and it's very much about the reaction um, to, to all of this change, right? And we all react to change differently. Some of us embrace change. Some of us abhor change. Some change is easy. Some change not so much. But it's a part of our life. It happens all of the time. And probably nothing has, not probably, let's get rid of the probably, nothing has changed the world more dramatically than the birth, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And with Christ's incarnation, this brought in a new phase in God's redemptive plan, right? And throughout his ministry, we see that that Jesus introduces specific changes in his life and in his ministry that, and the one we're going to look at this morning in the text, particularly impacted, especially the disciples and as the church begins, Jewish believers and the church will struggle with this change literally for decades to come. Accepting this change is not going to come easy in the first century. So we're going to read in Mark, we're in chapter seven, would you please rise? We're looking on page 843 of the Bibles in your row. I know that because I forgot my Bible, so I have one of the Bibles from the row. You should be very concerned when the preacher forgets his Bible at home. So we're in Mark chapter 7, verses 14 to 23. And Mark writes, And he called the people to him again and said to them, 
Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, Jesus again, what comes out of a person is for what comes out of a person is what defiles him for from within out of the heart of man come evil thoughts sexual immorality theft murder adultery coveting wickedness deceit sensuality envy slander pride foolishness all of these evil things come from within and they defile a person this is the word of the lord let's let's pray We're so thankful for your word, uh, Father. We're so thankful for its truth. We're thankful for its clarity. Uh, We're thankful that it is sufficient um, to guide our lives and inform us of you. Father, this morning, as we take apart your word, uh, would you open our hearts? Would you give us clarity of thought? Uh, Would you give my words uh, impact in transforming our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So Mark starts here by saying, and he called the people to him again. So last week we had the Pharisees, they had come from Jerusalem. And in Mark, whenever Pharisees come from Jerusalem, it's a a hostile effort. They're investigating, right? This is not a social visit. They are on business. Jesus has been teaching and healing and feeding, and he's gotten rather popular. He's calming storms and walking on water. But he's also rocking the boat. He's claiming to have the power to forgive sins. He's having dinner with tax collectors and sinners. He's not fasting when he's supposed to. And the list of things he's doing on the Sabbath that he should not be doing is as long as my arm. He's upsetting people. He's drawn the ire of the religious elite. And as we previously read in Mark, the the, uh, Pharisees, quote, unquote, held counsel with of all people the Herodians, in an effort to figure out a way to destroy Jesus. So we saw last week yet another attempt of the religious elite to trap Jesus and his followers. They asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? But Jesus countered with God's word, always a good plan, and he rebuked them for putting their traditions ahead of and in place of God's word. But as we see this week, he's not done with the lesson. But he's shifting the focus of his teaching and the depth of the impact. Mark says that after this altercation with the Pharisees, he called the people to him again. So he had this altercation with the Pharisees, initiated by the Pharisees, who he subsequently theologically thumped, and then the Lord turned toward the people. And so Mark says, and he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. Now this this hear me, all of you, kind of echoes what we saw previously in Mark, where Jesus said several times, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It recalls, hear, O Israel, 
from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, and that indicates that what follows is significant. Jesus is calling the people to attention. He is about to give an authoritative pronouncement. He's about to give an oracle from God. William Barclay calls what Jesus is about to say well nigh the most revolutionary passage in the New Testament. So here's what he said. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Are we clear? Does that make sense? Do we know what Jesus is saying? You are probably getting it more than the first century listeners were getting it. You are not a first century Jew. First century century Jews could list dozens of things that by, quote, going into him would defile a person. So what Jesus is saying is directly contradictory to what Jews had been practicing for centuries. For you, the Mosaic laws and traditions of the elders are not the focal point and guiding force in your everyday lives, but they were to the listeners of Jesus at the time. For these people who heard heard Jesus say this, what he is saying is incredible. We have the full-blown New Testament revelation to guide us. We have the benefit of centuries of church history. We have biblical scholars and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. These folks had none of that. This was a huge announcement to them. And remember, this is a parable, right? A earthly story or example that by way of metaphor also contains a spiritual meaning. So what is Jesus saying? Well, if his meaning is not 100% clear to you, you have company. They're called disciples. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? What is Jesus saying? And why does William Barclay think this is such a big deal? What Jesus is saying has two parts to it. One in the negative, that is what does not defile us, and one in the affirmative, here is what does. Both relate to this concept of defilement. That is what makes us unclean in the eyes of God. The first in the negative will cause a great deal of consternation among the audience who hears it, the disciples, the church, for decades to come. The second, while more familiar to the listeners at the time, has deep implications for all of us. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not the heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Kind of sounds like a biology lesson, yes? Digestive system 101? It's not. But he is talking about food. Something that goes into a person, enters the stomach, and then is expelled. That's food, yes? Clearly. But in his explanation, he includes a reference to the heart. Since it enters not the heart. Now, Jesus is biologically correct, right? When we eat food, it does not enter the physical heart. But is that the heart he's talking about? Is that his point? In biblical terms, and to the first century Semite who's listening, the heart 
refers to the innermost nature of who we are. It is the center of our personality. It determines our actions. It's the mind and the soul. It's our moral center. One could say, and think about this, that a person is defined by what is held in the heart. Think of the people you know. Isn't that what makes a person that person? What they think, who they are, what their mind is, their innermost being. So by tracing the path of food through the body, Jesus is demonstrating that food enters into the physical digestive part of a person, but it does not touch the moral, ethical, spiritual part. Since the digestive system lacks contact with the heart, whatever one puts into his mouth cannot make a person unclean. The digestive system of the human body does not allow what is eaten, whether clean or unclean, to touch the moral part of a person. This all seems rather obvious and mundane, does it not? Didn't you know this before you walked in? I thought you probably did. The notion that what we eat does not impact our moral, ethical, spiritual. But again, we are not first century Jews. The Mosaic law is quite explicit about what should and should not be eaten, how and when food should be eaten, and even how food should be prepared. I give you Exodus twenty-three nineteen: You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Thanks, Moses. I never would have thought of doing that. But that's very specific, is it not? So Jesus saying, doesn't matter what you eat, runs in the face of all of this. Very hard to accept. Page after page, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, the law lays out in very specific fashion. Regulations for civil activity, ceremonies, offerings, food, rituals, and so forth. And to violate these laws was to be unclean, to be defiled in the eyes of God. So when Jesus said that what you eat has nothing to do with your status before a holy God, this was a thing, a big thing. It was such a thing that two or three decades later, when Mark wrote this gospel, based on the memoirs of Peter, he included that parenthetical remark in verse 19. Do you see that? Thus he, Jesus, declare all food clean. These are not the words of Jesus. The quotation mark ends, the parentheses begin, and then after that Jesus begins speaking again, right? So Mark, who is writing decades later, who has the benefit and of the knowledge of the complete ministry of Jesus' death and resurrection, included these comments. Mark, who traveled with Peter and Paul and served with James and John and Barnabas, So this parenthetical remark is not insignificant. It is guiding we, the reader, and the first century church in particular when the gospel was written. Only six words. And what it states is something that the disciples did not grasp at the time because it was so countercultural. So something has changed. Now this should beg a question in our mind because Jesus clearly accepted Moses' authority as a teacher of God's word. Right? Whenever he quotes scripture, this is the word of God. So now, why declare all foods clean? Now, at this point, I had prepared a lesson in Old Testament law that would knock your socks off. 
It was a science fair. Midweek, my desk was covered with so many references of Old Testament law, you could not see the surface of it. Flowcharts, graphs, citations from Scripture. It was something. But then we would have missed the kickoff. So the Holy Spirit and I agreed. The Holy Spirit told me, only the summary, David. So here we go. So the Old Testament, little quiz. We had this as a repeat from last week's quiz. The Old Testament law has as its foundation, Exodus 20, what? Don't mumble. Yeah, we didn't do very well last week either, did we? The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments reflect God's character and define the life that our Lord has called us to live. Right? Let me repeat what Chris said last week. Compliance with these commandments is not and has never been the means to salvation. Right? For the people of Israel first came redemption from Egypt. Then came the law. For us, first came redemption. And then a call to be holy as God is holy. Correct? The Ten Commandments are a guide for how God's chosen people in the Old Testament Israel, and the New Testament believers, that he had already redeemed, are to live in the light of his grace. And the various other laws, the civil laws, ceremonial, offerings, priestly regulations, cleanness and uncleanness, rituals, are elaborations and applications of those foundational concepts. So, These laws have a purpose. Ceremonial laws, the laws that the priests followed, the sacrifices and the rituals that they did were designed to point to Jesus. I had this diagram of a tabernacle that was just fantastic. You should have, oh, we'd have gone on for hours, right? Everything in the tabernacle, the bread, Jesus is the bread of life, the gold, the positioning, the rooms, everything points to Jesus. Those rituals were to point the Old Testament nation of Israel to Jesus. The civil laws are pertaining to how people should act with one another. So, for example, we have the commandment, do not steal. What the Ten Commandments don't tell us is, when somebody does steal, what do we do? So we have things like Exodus 22.1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. This is how the nation of Israel is to live. And apparently an oxen is worth more than a sheep because you had to give away five rather than four. And the other laws, the laws on holiness, these things about clean and unclean are designed to teach us and reflect the holiness of God. Now, in my notes right here, the next thing I'm going to say is all caps, bold face, red font. Ready? Nothing has changed in the foundational principles contained in the Ten Commandments. Nothing. That is not what Jesus is saying here. And we had this last week. Jesus said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not in an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. uh, That part doesn't go away. What Jesus is saying is that the specific application in the lives of God's chosen people, as detailed in the Mosaic Law, not the foundational 
principles is now being put aside. Jesus is saying that a time has come when the rules on food and diet contained in the law will be set aside and by implication, the ritual and social regulations as well. We see this throughout the New Testament. In Acts 10, Peter has this vision that reinforces exactly what Jesus is saying here in Mark 7. He has this vision of a sheet opening up. And in the sheet are animals and reptiles and birds. And God in his very voice says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, no, no, no. I have never eaten anything that was unclean. This is decades after he heard Jesus just say what he had said. It's hard. It's hard for them to get this. In unmistakable terms, though, God is saying the food laws are set aside. At the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council declared that circumcision was not to be imposed on believing Gentiles. It is no longer a requirement of God's people. Speaking of Gentiles, Gentiles. We can talk to them now because they're members of our church. How radical was that? My youngest son, Brian, and I, we get together once a week and we do discipling. We've gone through Malachi and now we're going through Philippians. And I thought it would be kind of cool as we went through Philippians that we would kind of learn a little bit more about Paul's life, you know, and, and how he lived, you know, the, a lot of biography. And so I have on DVD... That's a disc that contains like video and stuff. (laughs) Get ready for this reference. A TV (laughs) miniseries from the 1970s called called Peter and Paul. And this week we watched the the episode that had Paul and Barnabas and Titus going to the Jerusalem council and this, this Jewish leader in the Christian church, you know, is making the point that, oh, we still have to obey the laws. And so, so Paul and Barnabas and James and John and Titus, the Greek, uncircumcised, is standing there and this Jewish leader says, we must require circumcision. And I don't know what the director had in mind, but then he shows Titus. How come all of the women laughed and none of the men? (laughs) But the great thing about this is the role of Paul is played by none other than a young Sir Anthony Hopkins. Oh, it's sweet. And now when I read Paul, I hear Anthony Hopkins. It's good. It really is. I digress. We can see why the disciples had trouble grasping this completely countercultural. It didn't get it on the first pass, and then Jesus takes him in the house, and we don't hear the result, but it's pretty clear that decades later, Peter's still worried about what he eats. They didn't get it on the second pass when Jesus was teaching. It's radically countercultural, and it's inconceivable to the religious elite at the time. In fact, as the Old Testament unfolds, and the early church is born and grows, much continues to be said and debated about the place of the Mosaic Law. The Apostle Paul himself, in Anthony Hopkins' voice, will devote a significant portion of his writing to this issue. So, there's the change. Difficult for a lot of people to accept, difficult to adjust to. We're setting aside the application of the Old Testament laws in food, ceremonies, and rituals. So the big question is, why? Why the, why the dramatic change? 
want you to hold that question just for a minute. We'll get back to it. Let's look at the affirmative. Jesus goes on and said, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Now, here's a lesson we 21st century believers know and understand, at least intellectually, right? Sometimes we struggle with it a little bit in practice. It is the idea that the state of our inner being is what is important. It's the notion that our heart, the biblical meaning, not the biological meaning, is the, of the utmost interest to God. Yet, our conduct and behavior reflect the state of that inner being what is going on in the heart. Unlike what we saw in the first part, the negative part, setting aside of the food laws, what Jesus is preaching here, what he's teaching, probably pretty clear to the audience he's speaking to. Probably pretty clear to the disciples, pretty clear to the people, the importance of inner purity. It's not a new concept. It's woven throughout the Old Testament, right? Isaiah 29, 13, Jesus quoted this just a few verses back in in Mark. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Not a new concept at all. And Jesus has been teaching this all along. Both Matthew and Luke record that Jesus says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus raises the stakes, right? He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Anger, a condition of the heart. A few verses later, Jesus, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. What? With her in his heart. This part they get. But while they understand conceptually what Jesus is saying, what he is actually saying about our hearts is quite disturbing. Look at that list. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness. This is, there's nothing nice listed here. There's, there's no warm and fuzzy to be found. Bible scholars have said a lot about this list the number of items on the list, their nature, some are plural, some are singular, about their seriousness. There's another science fair we could have done there. But the bottom line is this, that that defilement comes from the core of our being and it's not pretty. And long before Jesus spoke these words, the prophet Jeremiah said this about the heart, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So it seems we have a problem. Jesus has pinpointed our problem not as something outside of us, but as something inside, something internal that produces defilement. What are we to do? What is required is a radical change in the human heart. How do we do that? That's the second question I brought up, right? Why the change? Why the change in all of the Mosaic law when Jesus made the change? And our hearts need a radical transformation 
How do we do it? The answer to both questions rests in the same place. The Messiah has come and the kingdom of God is at hand. The Messiah has come and the kingdom of God is at hand. You're all saying amen in your hearts, aren't you? I am. How did this apply to, the, to these food laws? With the coming of the kingdom of God, the period of mankind's tutelage, our learning, our understanding under the law has come to, the end, come to an end. The rules of scripture concerning clean versus clean, they've served their purpose, but they're now superseded by greater freedom of the new covenant whose focus is what comes out of the heart. Regulations concerning such things as food have given way to being sons and daughters in Christ. This freedom from the issue of clean versus unclean comes from Jesus himself. One of the questions the commentaries asked was, wait a minute, a few verses before what we saw last week was Pharisees changing the law. Doesn't it seem that's what Jesus is doing? Well, yeah. But he's kind of Jesus. In John fourteen ten, Jesus says this: "Do not believe that I am in the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His work. Pretty good authority. How has this happened specifically? Think about it. The Old Testament priesthood." The order through which mankind, God's chosen people, had to seek forgiveness before has been superseded by whom? Jesus, our great high priest. The Old Testament sacrifices, which symbolically were to forgive our sins, have been replaced by the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Circumcision of the body has been replaced by circumcision of the heart. The social regulations no longer apply because we are a people reconstituted, not by birth, but by faith. Paul sums this up nicely in the second chapter of Romans where he says this, for no one is a Jew, a person of God, one of God's chosen people who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit not by the letter, not by the law. His praise is not from man, but from God. In other words, in Christ, ritual prescriptions have been consummated and surpassed by the reality of Christ's finished work. The spiritual purpose of the law remains, 10 commandments, but we are to look at the application in the light of Christ's teaching, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. In all of this, Think about it. The moral laws receive not less depth, but more depth. As Jesus reveals their original intent, it's the heart, not what is outside. So what about the second question? What is the remedy for our defiled hearts? The Messiah has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. The only answer to the problem of our heart is regeneration. And the only way that happens 
is the gospel. Long ago, God told us about his plan, about our hearts. Ezekiel 36, 26 says this, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And what did he do? Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, steps out from heaven, lives an undefiled life, the only person to ever do that, innocent in every way, led to the cross to die, the perfect unblemished lamb the ultimate lamb dies, is resurrected, goes to heaven, and then what? His spirit comes upon mankind for all believers. And on the other side of that, Paul writes in Second uh, Corinthians, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So of this notion of new heart, regeneration, of becoming a new creation. R. Kent Hughes writes this, the gospel is consummately radical. A new birth, a new heart, a new creation, a resurrection. Apart from Christ, the world is desperately lost. It can only be redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus. There is no other way. We can polish the outside, we can educate ourselves, we can do good things. But none of these things will really change us. We need Christ's life. So, in this two-part pronouncement, Jesus is not diminishing the foundation of the law found in the Ten Commandments, but rather increasing the depth of their original intent. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, his kind of great treatise on the place of the law and the place of faith, chapter 3, he says this, Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, but for in Christ Jesus, you were all sons of God through faith. The intent of the law is not to regulate behavior, but to define holiness something the food, social, and ritual regulations could only allude to, could only be the guardian of. Christ has come, and we are saved by faith. His coming brought with it a new covenant. The covenant is not about outward behavior and external cleanliness, but transformation of the heart, being transformed to the image of Christ. And in the upper room, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus announced the new covenant putting aside the rules and regulations, but not the moral absolutes of the Mosaic Covenant. He instructed the disciples to take and eat the bread, his broken body, and drink the cup of the new covenant. When we gather today as disciples, we do the same. Here at Redeemer, we break off the bread and dip it into the cup. We offer two cups, one with juice and one with wine. The cup with wine is marked with twine, so you'll know which is which. This meal is for those who have taken Christ as Lord and Savior, who have accepted his free gift, his free offering of salvation in him. So as we partake, there will be uh, prayer responders in the back. I'll be in the back too. 
If you have questions, if you need prayer, love to pray with you. Let's pray now. Father God, we're so grateful just to see your plan unfold, just to see the beauty of the law you gave to Moses and how it taught us, how it led us, how it showed us your son, how it showed us how to live together, how it showed us what holiness is. But Father, we're so grateful. The Messiah has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. You have reached out to us, undeserving as we are, and brought us unto you and created a new people in your Son, in your Spirit. Uh, Father, just continue to transform our hearts. Give us hearts that reflect you, that reflect your holiness. Uh, Give us strength in your Spirit. Father, we love you. We're grateful to you. In Jesus' name, amen.